This is Bob Morris in Desert Horticulture. Today we'll be talking about how to rotate your crops even if you have small raised beds, apricots that drop their leaves, and a disease problem on tomatoes that's a little bit different. This and more on today's Desert Horticulture. Learn more about Desert Horticulture by signing up for my blog, Extreme Horticulture of the Desert. That's all one word, Extreme Horticulture, and starting with an X. Take some of my classes on Eventbrite if you're in the Las Vegas area. That's Bob Morris on Eventbrite. I was watching a YouTube video of a home gardener and it caught my attention because that YouTube video I was watching was a young guy and he was cautioning people in a very sophisticated manner that it wasn't important to, in small garden areas and uh, raised beds, it's not important uh, for rotating your crops. It was only uh, it only applied to commercial growers, and it was no big deal if you didn't want to do it. Well, I I don't know. I can't really disagree any higher than that. It's very very important. And the people that I talk to, who have home gardens, whether it's raised beds or a small garden area, most of them aren't rotating their crops, and that can work for a period of time, but eventually that's going to catch up to you. If you don't start moving your plants from place to place, crops from place to place year after year, that's going to be a problem. It was driven home to me how much of a problem that is by the continuous cropping in small greenhouses when I was uh, visiting uh, Lebanon. And I was looking at some of the tomato and pepper production in those small houses. The small houses, I mean, they were commercial houses. They were not tiny, tiny houses. They were probably 25 feet wide and uh, probably uh, 75 to 100 feet long. These were not small houses. Uh, and these people were commercial growers. They were growing peppers and, and uh, tomatoes and other crops out of season so that they could sell them at the local market at a little bit higher price. But um, it was real clear to me that one of the reasons I was there is because of the disease problems that was occurring on peppers and tomatoes. And in those, it was real obvious to me that when I started asking them, are they rotating their crops? They said, no, they continuously crop the same, same thing over and over in those houses. Eventually, that inoculum, that disease inoculum, will start to build in that soil. And if you're not careful, it's going to cause your plants to come down much more easily with certain diseases, verticillium, fusarium, those kinds of things, than at other times. So when you're cropping, when you're growing your vegetables at home, even if it's just a single raised bed, you can still move them. And what I mean by that, by crop rotation, we're talking about uh, trying to grow different families of vegetables in different spots year after year. So you can grow tomatoes, for instance, on the north end of your raised bed, then in the next year grow it in the south end, and the next following year grow it in the middle of the bed. And then you can rotate it back to the beginning of the bed. You want to rotate these into different spots. Um, in a rotation of about every three cropping cycles, 
Yeah. So if you go do it for three years, you should be okay. You you want a minimum of three cropping cycles, and it'd be better to get five cropping cycles. So in other words, you can follow things like when you have the same family of plants. Those, for instance, on the tomato family, you've got tomato, pepper, eggplant, potatoes, just to name some of those that are in the in that particular family, the nightshade family. So you don't want to grow. If you're growing something in that spot that's in the nightshade family, you want to grow some other family, vegetables from some other family there next, whether it's leafy vegetables or an onion or garlic crop, whatever it might be. Just don't put tomatoes back in the same spot year after year over and over again or that inoculum, that disease inoculum will start to build. And if you're not careful, it'll build so quickly that it may just eliminate an entire crop. So if you're having luck with, let's say, tomatoes or peppers, and you're not having luck anymore, and you're not following a crop rotation cycle, that could be part of the problem. Uh, so make sure that you're rotating them. When we're going to rotate them, it's the best thing, best to know which vegetables are in which families and give them a name. So for instance, uh, on the tomato family, that's the nightshade family, the Solanaceae family. So any of those crops that are in that family do not grow in that soil next year. They grow in a different location. Just It doesn't have to be far away, just a different spot. One of the things that you can do, so you'll follow it with, let's say, lettuce, the leafy vegetables. Don't grow leafy vegetables there next year. Grow garlic or onions, totally different family, totally different crop history, totally different disease problems, usually, that are going to be problems with those crops. And by doing that, by following some sort of a cycle, a rotation, they're calling it that crop rotation cycle, by building that rotational cycle in, year after year, you're going to start reducing the disease population. It's also very important to keep your beds clean, sanitize them. If you're going to go ahead and, and cut up your tomatoes or vines, uh, your squash vines, and compost them, that's fine. Just try to get it into a hot compost. What I mean by that is generate some heat with that. Don't let it slowly cook at low temperatures or that disease potential might still be, might still hang around. But if you can get those temperatures in the composting process up to about 160, 165 degrees for at least 30 minutes, you're going to do a lot to uh, conserve, to, to eliminate or reduce the disease potential uh, that would be returned to that soil. Another method that could be used is soil solarization. If you've got a, a cold compressed composting process going on. What I mean by that is you're composting, but the temperatures just aren't very high. They're still rotting, and they will rot at lower temperatures. It's just when you can force those temperatures up to that 160, 165 degree mark, that's when you're start, starting to get some control of some of the disease organisms that could cycle back into your cropping history and cause some problems. So if you're cold comp composting, the temperatures aren't getting that hot. Then take that compost, wrap it in some plastic, or spray it first with a little bit of water, moisten it, then cover it tightly 
with clear plastic during the summer months and just let it cook seal the edges of that of that clear plastic to the soil let it cook let it cook for a week three days four days a week and during that process too, uncover it flip it over turn it over and then cook it again and start to reduce some of that disease potential because if you cover it with clear plastic in our desert with our desert light intensity in the summer months it'll easily easily get up to 165 degrees and that's that magic temperature that you need to have uh, for it to uh, for it to start to cause those disease organisms to start to disappear so anyway um, what you'll want to do don't don't neglect it another possibility and I really like it a lot since we've been doing it over at Virgrow where I consult uh, uh, once a week uh, the the guy there Arturo has been growing vegetables in containers along with raised beds so the soil that is manufactured at Virgrow is tested first in the raised beds and uh, one of the th comments I made to him he's doing a really good job he's becoming a better and better uh, gardener all the time that's not his background but he was becoming a better and better gardener and he started shifting to save some space some of the open space into containers fives and 15 gallon containers with some of the tomatoes some of the onions everything you name it he's but and that's another method that you can use container gardening is another method you can use uh, to reduce disease problems because that once that soil is has been contaminated and you're cropping it in a couple of times you don't want to grow tomatoes or onions in the same soil year after year after year otherwise you're going to have to solarize it you're going to have to fumigate it or do something to reduce that disease problem that's in that soil or you're going to see a steady increase if not a dramatic increase in the disease problems of your crops going into that soil so anyway crop rotation a very important ingredient when you're doing even small-scale gardening uh, at home the next question I had is we have an apricot tree about five years old it's always seemed happy but this year it leafed out beautifully then last week now keep in mind this is May started losing its healthy green leaves on one side of the tree the apricots are on that tree that side of the tree but not developed yet they weren't fully mature now half the branches on that one side are leafless well the first thing that you want to do is check for bore problems which direction is it facing is it looking is it facing the south or the west side on that side because bores are a problem in uh, in fruit trees uh, apricot less of a problem than in peach and in apple but uh, that flat-headed apple tree bore that gets into it can cause some severe damage that's a little early in the season to start seeing damage dieback death of branches in that time it could be just a uh, a temporary leaf drop due to whatever a change in the temperatures a change in the watering regime whatever could cause a little bit of stress it could drop its leaves so go up to the tree bend some of the branches see if it's still supple or not and if it's supple then see if you can get it to regenerate remake some of the leaves that it lost and put it back on if it's got bores you should start to see uh, sap oozing from the trunk and if 
this is a good time to get a hose end sprayer and just spray those uh, branches uh, thoroughly. Get them wet. Use a little bit of soap and water and get that that area really wet. Get water inside the limb and then look at it the next the following day and see if there's oozing coming out because that oozing is from uh, borer activity. The larvae, the worms that are inside the tree are feeding and as they're feeding they're causing damage and then that that tree is pushing out sap uh, from the damaged areas by the bores, and even if they're underneath the wood, underneath the bark, you can still see the damaged area just from the uh, the sap that's being oozed out from those particular locations. So try that. Look for that. Look for bore activity in it, uh, and see if it's supple. If it's uh, still supple, then I'd just go ahead and even if you're think there might be, you could do this at the same time. If you think there are possibly could be bores in there still, put a, take a hose, put a hose end sprayer on the end, get a, one of those mechanical timers for about $10 and set it for about an hour and adjust the water so it's, it sprays about six feet in diameter and just water that area under the tree and get it moist. Otherwise you can use a soil moisture sensor and see if that soil is moist. You can uh, use a shovel, go down about six, eight inches, pull up that soil and squeeze it. See if it's still, if it makes a ball or if it falls apart easily when you, when you bounce it up and down. That's another technique for seeing if there's plenty of soil moisture in that soil or not. But see if that's, that could be a, a possible problem for it. Uh, it is possible that one side of that tree got wet and another side didn't. And maybe you're looking at some, uh, some uh, leaf drop because it got a little bit too dry. But uh, let's follow the KISS principle. Usually when we think about uh, leaf drop, we think about dryness and drought. So investigate that first. But check the branches, see if they're still supple. Then add water and then spray the tree underneath it, soap and water. Get that water to come in and see if there's sap that's oozing out the next day. Not, it won't happen immediately, but you'll see it the next day. And look for sap that's being pushed from the limbs. Sap on apricots and plums isn't always the, uh, the, final, the final decree, uh, bore decree on, on those particular trees. They're sappy to begin with. Plums much more so than apricots, but apricots can be rather sappy too. Peaches, not as sappy. They, they will, if they're sprayed down and the limbs are sprayed down, and they get wet after a rain or whatever it might be, that's a great time to start looking for bore damage, bore activity in the tree, because they will have some sap oozing from those limbs. So let's see what happens with that. If that's the case, give it some uh, fertilizer. Make sure that the water, when it is being watered, gets down about 12, 18 inches deep, and then go ahead and, uh, and make the correction, corrective act act actions at that time. You might also, if the soil is not covered with wood chips underneath that tree, you might want to consider doing that. Uh, and hopefully it's not in a garden area. That wasn't said. But if the soil is doesn't have anything growing underneath it, get some wood chips on the surface. And that'll, about three to four inches deep. And that'll help to keep the water in the soil rather than evaporating into the open air. I have six tomato plants grown from seed all indeterminate. They were growing in two-year-old rich soil mix 
containing compost that produced a lot of tomatoes last year. The leaves of the tomato plants developed okay, but then they got spotty and dried up. No blossoms at all. The leafy vegetables grew well, but the older leaves at the bottom of lettuce also developed black spots, became yellow, and then died. So I got some pictures from this person. He's a good gardener. I got some pictures from him, and looking at the pictures, you can Google the images, and you can see for yourself what it might look like. You can't see the picture that was sent to me unless you go on my blog, but you can go back and Google some of these pictures in images and take a look at it. But I, we're looking at the pictures and then noticing that we had a very wet spring. We had a lot of water, a lot of rain that came down. We had freezing events that happened in February, three of them that came through the valley. It was a very odd spring. And with that moisture too, that's really uh, increases the chance for a bacterial disease. Bacterial diseases are different than fungal diseases because bacteria, bacterial diseases require a lot of moisture in the air, requires humidity for, the, for them to become, to transfer and become effective. Fungi have methods of transferring and growing in places where it can be relatively dry, depending upon the disease organism. It can be relatively dry, but bacteria can't. Viruses are even worse because they've got to stay in a real moist environment almost the whole time. They, so that's why they're vectored. That's why they're carried from plant to plant by things, soft-bodied insects like aphids and white flies and, and things like that. The virus is picked up from infected plants in that sap. The insect takes it in and then regurgitates a little bit when they hit this new plant and this uninfected plant that's totally disease-free and they, in the process of going from a diseased plant to a non-diseased plant, they transfer, they can transfer the viral diseases. Uh, virus diseases are very difficult uh, to, to control unless you control the insects. So anyway, regardless of that. So when we're talking about bacterial diseases like a bacterial leaf spot uh, of tomato or pepper or lettuce or several of the vegetables, we're really talking about high humidity. Uh, we're talking about sprinkler irrigation versus drip irrigation. We're talking about a lot of rain during that period of time, a couple of months prior to it, to seeing the symptoms uh, evolve on the plants. So when we're looking at those, at those things, take a look at what was the weather like a, a month or two prior to seeing these disease problems. If it was a lot of rain and humidity, Bacterial diseases can be a problem, and I typically don't, we don't see a lot of bacterial diseases unless they're extreme, in the desert, unless they're extremely virulent, unless they're really powerful diseases, like for instance, um, fire blight. Fire blight is an example of a bacterial disease that can be spread during wet, rainy, windy weather and it doesn't pop up for a couple of months on the tree. You don't see the symptoms. It's infected. It's inside the tree, but you don't see the symptoms yet. So uh, we can have those places, those diseases like bacterial leaf spot. And that's what I'm looking at the picture that he sent, and especially that rainy weather. Then looking at the lettuce that had yellow, the older leaves were yellow. 
they were starting to die and they had black spots on them. And when you compared the picture of bacterial leaf spot with what he sent in, it looked very, very similar, which gave me a lot of suspicion. So what do you do about bacterial leaf spot? Well, by, first of all, <laughs> get your crystal ball out and try to see if it's going to be a rainy spring. Usually in the desert it's not. That, those are unusual circumstances. But if you suspect, or if you're using overhead irrigation, sprinkler irrigation on your vegetables, then you'll want to buy seed that is free, certified free of bacterial leaf spot, of the bacterial diseases. They are available. They're a little bit more costly perhaps, but they are available. You can, you can treat seed yourself, hot water treatments, chlorine treatments, uh, to to sanitize the seeds before planting them, but it's uh, a little a little bit pricey because you've got to really monitor the soil temperatures very closely. The soil temperatures, the water temperatures in the water bath, you've got to in the water bath that you're preparing for the seeds. They're dipped in it much like uh, like you're dipping in a a tea bag. The seeds are dipped in that water for about 30 minutes. The information is online. You can, you can look for it on how to do hot water treatment of seed. Uh, and it's usually more effective than the chlorine treatments. Chlorine treatments are another possibility. But anyway, with the hot water treatments, typically it goes in twice. The seeds go in first and it gets to be about 100 degrees. Then the second time they're dipped, uh, it depends uh, whether they're pepper or, or tomato seeds, for instance. Lettuce seeds, I, I'm not sure about. But with, uh, in sanitizing those seeds, they're dipped in for either 25 or 30 minutes at a very precise temperature. If you get them too high, they're going to die. So the temperatures, if they get to be 130, for instance, 135, there's a very good possibility you'll kill the seeds. But they're typically somewhere around 122 to 125 in that, that temperature range uh, with it. You can use a candy thermometer. Any of the thermometers for cooking will be accurate enough, but you'll want to get it to, to those precise temperatures. And again, you know, <laughs> to buy something to get that precise temperature in the water is going to be expensive and it's going to be time consuming. Is that really all you want to spend your time? Your time. If it's not, then buy certified seed that is disease free and it's done for you and it doesn't cost that much more. So anyway, again too, crop rotation is very important. Don't grow those plants in the same spot year after year. Rotate them. So in this particular case, he mentioned that he was growing it for the second year in that spot. You know, it might work. It, it, it might be okay, especially if it's kept really clean. Then again, if there were some disease problems going on in there that first year, then you might ha not have some good luck. So rotate it to a new location. Put it in a new location other than where you're growing it now with it. Rotate them, even if it's just a few feet. Don't put them back in the same soil. So crop rotation. Another point that he made is he said he's using indeterminate varieties. Indeterminate, uh, the vines get longer and longer uh, as they produce more and more fruit. It's really, they're meant for 
more for continuous cropping, for cropping uh, for a long period of time. And for tomatoes, you get this uh, pretty narrow window up to when temperatures get to be about 95 degrees, and then the tomatoes stop setting fruit. Peppers are a little more tolerant of heat, but they too will stop setting fruit at higher temperatures. So rather than getting uh, indeterminate types, you might be better off getting determinate types that have a specific size. They're meant for a single crop. You're meant to go in, harvest them. They produce a lot in a very small area as opposed to indeterminate, which gets bigger and bigger, so you need larger and larger areas. Uh, so the determinate types might be a better choice because of our high temperatures. And then just pull them out when you're done with them. June, July, put them, pull them out. Restart, put in, start your seeds a little bit earlier. Get something up around six, eight inches tall and replant for the fall crop. Uh, determinate types. And usually you'll find some of the types that we like to see. Early girl or patio, celebrity, champion. Some of those varieties you'll usually find them in both forms. You'll find indeterminate types and determinate types because they've been bred by the, the vegetable breeders have done that for you. So when you're looking for seed and you're going to start it yourself or if you're buying transplants, look to see if you're getting a determinate form or an indeterminate form. And determinates are probably a better choice. Not in the case of melons so much, maybe not even cucumbers, but it would be certainly for tomatoes. So let's keep that in mind well uh, that's it for today uh, thanks for joining me I hope I transferred some information to you let me know take care bye bye